Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Because I really think Better brain, better decisions. Better brain, better relationships. Better brain, more money. Better brain, better life. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Health Theory. Today, we are joined by a psychiatrist, best-selling author, and a brain scan ninja, Dr. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. I always love spending time with you and reading your books. They are incredible, have been life-changing for me. And the most recent one, Your Brain Is Always Listening, is no exception. So thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for helping me spread the word about brain health. So speaking of the brain, if it's always listening, what is it always listening to? And what is this idea of dragons that you talked about in the book? I find this really useful. Well, your brain is always listening. It's listening to your past. It's listening to the food you eat. It's listening to marketers. It's listening. When you say it's listening to your past, is it listening to what you say about your past or are you using listen as sort of an umbrella for reliving? The past for many people is always present for them. And I got this idea of dragons from the past that still breathe fire on your emotional brain. So I was doing a podcast with Dr. Sharon May, who's a friend of mine, relational therapist, and she started talking about dragons from the past that were ruining relationships. And then she and I started collaborating. It's like, well, let's identify the dragons. And we came up with 13 of them. And a couple, the pandemic just exploded like the death dragon or the grief and loss dragon. Um, but my whole life, I was living with the invisible, abandoned or insignificant dragon, one of seven. Um, I was in the middle, I'm a second son in a Lebanese family, which means you're expendable, <laughs> um, which turned out to be beautiful because I didn't have to go in the grocery business, right. right? And Lebanese families, the oldest child, the oldest male child goes in the business. And is your brother still in the business? My brother is the president of the business. Wow. <laughs> um, I don't think I'd ever heard you talk. I mean, your dad was really successful in the business that he built. I didn't realize just how much sort of, I guess, ended up not being familial pressure for you, but certainly would have been for your brother. Well, it's pressure. When you grow up with a dad that's very successful, I mean, he ended up being the chairman of the board of a $4 billion company. Wow. Um, you often just go like, I can never live up mm. to that. And so you're struggling in that comparison 
which is actually the second dragon, the inferior flawed dragon. And I had that one in spades, you know, being short and second. And, um, you know, it helped me in so many ways, right? The dragons have downsides, mm. but they also have upsides. If you have felt insignificant, well, I built a life based on being significant. And it sort of worked. So how do you help people reconcile that? Like when I, when I read the book, I'm hearing about these dragons, they mostly sound negative, but you, in terms of if they go unchecked, your prefrontal cortex is offline, it really does become pathological and it becomes a problem. But I'm obsessed with this idea that there's pathology on both sides. So if you have too much drive, it's gonna spill into pathology. You know, if you're feeling too broken, too inadequate, whatever. But if you don't have enough, there's also pathology on that side. How do you help people walk that balance? Is it the prefrontal cortex? Well, it's always this balance between your prefrontal cortex. So think of that as the break in your brain. But you don't want it too strong. When it works too hard, people have OCD. It's sort of like the break is always on. And so if you think of a car, like I like going to Big Bear, and think about coming down the hill, mm. you need a good prefrontal cortex. You need a good brake. Because if the brake's not on, you die because you go <laughs> off a cliff, which is apropos. People don't break their behavior, mm. and they make bad decisions, and so they die early. But if the brake is always on, you can't get down the hill either because it's like stop, stop, stop stop. Think of people who have OCD. So it's about balance between the front third of your brain, prefrontal cortex, and your emotional brain. Because we need passion. We need purpose. We need a reason to do something. But if it works too hard, we get sad, or we get too anxious, or we come traumatized. Mm -hmm. uh, the wounded dragons, just so common, way more common now since the pandemic. And wounded the dragon is I am broken in some way or something it's, else? It's I've had trauma. Okay. And I tell Literal the stories worries. of <laughs> reliving it was so hard for me. But when I was little, I had this beautiful white goat mm. who um, was, was our pet, Sugar. Yeah. And um, I actually have this video. I did a public television special on the new book and I actually showed the video of me mm. when I'm five playing with sugar and sugar's kissing me and, and it was just beautiful. Yeah. But sugar also liked my dad's roses. Mm -hmm. And so one day sugar went off to the farm, which means sugar got slaughtered. Right. And a couple of nights later, my dad and his brother were joking that they were feeding us sugar for dinner, which was incredibly traumatic for me. And years How later... How were you at this point? Like six, five or six. Oof. And I mean, I, and I remember it like it's yesterday. But years later, I was in Monterey, Mexico, giving a big talk, mm. and they have goat meat for sale in street vendors. Like, we don't do that in the United States. Right. And as I walked by... I got flooded with that memory, and all of a sudden, I'm 43 or something, have a panic attack. Wow. Because the past is always connected to the present. Mm. And so if there's trauma, learning how, and I talk about this in the book, how to 
recognize it and disconnect from it. Okay, so that's recognizing it, disconnecting, doing the unwinding is a tall order. Before we get to that, can you, what are some of the most common dragons? And if you have one of these running rampant in your life, your prefrontal cortex isn't putting the brakes on it, what, what does that manifest as in, in the more common dragons? Well, so we've had over 100,000 people take the quiz knowyourdragons.com. So people can do that. It's free. And on average, people have six of them. So it's common to have mm-hmm. issues. And the anxious dragon is the most common. The responsible dragon, where you feel like you have to take care of other people, which actually can breed this thing called codependence and entitlement in others. You have to be careful with that. The wounded dragon, the inferior flawed dragon, it's very common. And it's basically, I compare myself to you in a negative way. Um, social media is driving that epidemic. Um, and the death dragon sort of surprised me, but you know, we did the study during COVID and is that a fear of death? It's the fear of death dragon. And a lot of people haven't come to grips with death. Like one of the strategies I have actually played out today is write down 10 good things about dying. Whoa. And, um, it's like, oh, well, that's okay. Because if it's inevitable, it is. Right. It's, it's like you have to learn to embrace it. And there's a lot of writing exercises in, in the book because I actually want people to write their story and give it the ending they want and then ask themselves every day, then kick in your prefrontal cortex. Is my behavior getting me what I want? Because too often people go for fixes that fail rather than fixes that fix. Okay, so first we're going to identify our dragon. Okay, so I have the fear of death dragon or I have the anxiety dragon. As somebody who suffered with the anxiety dragon, that one's very easy for me to relate to. Okay, so I have the anxiety dragon. I'm obsessing about a future that I'm practicing the failure unintentionally. This was my thing. I would find my, what I thought of as exit ramps. Like if this situation becomes problematic, what's my exit ramp? But in thinking about all of my exit ramps, I was rehearsing it going wrong, 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 wrong. And when I'm journaling, the idea I want to bring together with this, so I I identify my dragon, but now when I'm doing the journaling, how do I get to accurate thinking? Because the problem in the first place is that I have a cognitive distortion. I have a a tendency to think of how the things could go wrong, or at least that felt like the right way to plan for the future. I've since stopped doing that. Um, how, how do you recognize what accurate thinking actually is? And you go through this in the book because you you have that like four questions that you have people do. I think it was four. And there's a, a part in there where they would often say like, I'm going to fail. Are you going to fail? Yes. Like to them, that seems self-evidently true. So how do you help them recognize that that isn't actually accurate? I help them question it. Whenever you feel sad or mad or nervous or out of control, write out what you're thinking. Mm. And then it's five questions, but it's, is it true? 
is it absolutely true with 100% certainty? Right. And that's the one that usually cracks it. It's like, um, worthless. Is it absolutely true? Now you're getting thoughtful. It's like, well, I'm a mother and I'm a sister and I'm a daughter. And no, it's not absolutely true. It's ridiculous. The third question is, how do I feel when I believe I'm worthless, mm. dead, withering, sad, lonely? And the fourth question is, who would I be without the thought? Or how would I feel if I didn't have the thought? The most common answer to that one is free. And then you flip it around to the opposite. It's like, I am worth something. Or I have worth. And then give me an example. Or two, or three, or four. And you have to do that exercise at least a hundred times to begin to retrain your automatic response. Mm. I mean, I've been teaching people to kill ants for a long time, automatic negative thoughts, but I just found these five questions. They're just so elegant to just have a dialogue with yourself. Mm. I'll never be successful or I won't have enough money. Um, or my life has no meaning. It's like, well, let's put that under a microscope. Not positive thinking, accurate thinking. Okay, so putting myself in the shoes of somebody that's trapped in one of these dragons, my gut instinct, and you've done this so much more than I have, but my gut instinct is the part that they're gonna struggle with the most is they're gonna say the opposite, right? So I have worth, I have value. It just isn't gonna feel true or it's gonna feel true at such a low rung level. Like, yes, okay, fine, I have some value, but Jesus, is it enough to be worth everything that I'm going through? I find that people are so ill-equipped to accurately identify what their abilities are, their capabilities, their worth, their value, all that. But I'm like, don't even worry about what's true. Ask yourself what's useful. And if it's useful to tell yourself, I'm a good person, I have worth, and that gets you moving towards doing the things that are actually worthy, then we're gonna do it. Does that make sense to you or do you think there's something better? Well, well, not better, I like it. It's with each of the dragons in the book, I have their origin story. So where do they come from? What's the upside? Because all the dragons have upsides. My abandoned, invisible, and insignificant dragon had tremendous upside for me. Um, how do you tame it? So it's more than just correct your thinking. So there's strategies. So for, for one, seeking significance, well, that's useful. And it could be volunteering at church. It, you know, whatever fits your definition internally of significance. And then I have meditations around each of them. Um, so think of that as foundational, like the wounded dragon. For example, I talk about EMDR, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. And it's so powerful. It's when you're traumatized, it actually gets stuck in your brain. And we see a pattern, we call it the diamond pattern in the brain. So your emotional brain gets turned on 
and it can't go back to normal or healthy. And EMDR, they actually have you bring up the trauma while they get your eyes to move back and forth and it settles it down. So as an example, 1996, so I've been doing imaging for 30 years. The first 20 years, it was like a horror film in my life because I was getting picked on. And, I mean, I had the New York Times pick on me, the Washington Post the pick on right, me, right. and my colleagues calling me bad names. And I'm like, I just want to look at the brain. What's your problem? Um, and in 1996, I had the state of California's medical board investigate me. Yeah, I'd never heard that year. before. It's crazy. And that was traumatizing. And I couldn't sleep. And one of the original EMDR trainers worked for me. And I walked into Jennifer Lendl's office in my clinic, and I'm like, you need to help me. After an hour of this treatment, I was absolutely fine. If they took my license from me, I could get a job, I could take care of my family, I was going to be fine. But you can just imagine, you spend a big chunk of your life trying to do what you do, and now someone's trying to take it away from you. Why does the lateral eye movement shift the brain so profoundly? That you go from, I can't sleep, this is a total mess, to one session and now I'm good. I think it's more than just eye movement. Um, there's another technique that's somewhat similar. That's a part of the same technique? It, no, but it's similar. It's called havening. Okay. And, but they're both bilateral hemisphere stimulation. So, for example, um, off camera, we talked about how my dad died last year. And a couple of days after he died, um, in a random stack of papers, I'm at my mom's house just helping her organize things, mm. is a picture of my dead dad in the mortuary. And I'm like, what idiot? Because it just bothered me. And I noticed it was just bothering me throughout the day. You know, I'd see the picture and I'd be irritated and... And then I'm like, oh, you help people who have this problem. And havening is bilateral hemisphere stimulation. So it's either rubbing your hands like this while you think of the trauma. Um, it's rubbing your face, probably not cool in a pandemic. Um, or what my favorite thing is, and I do this a lot with my patients, is I have them hold their shoulders and then rub down to their forearms and they do it for 30 seconds. And the idea is to get stimulation on both sides of your body? Getting both sides while you bring up the trauma. Do you have so, to do it yourself or can someone else do it for you? Either way. And people can learn about it at havening.org, like safe haven, havening.org. And so I did that with the picture and you rate it like on a scale of one to 10. And that was like a nine. I was pretty irritated by this. And after I did it for 30 seconds, it's like a four. And then after I did it again, the irritation was gone. I did it two more times for 30 seconds and I fell in love with the picture because it was the last picture of my dad on earth. And so there are techniques so that you don't have to live with trauma spinning in your brain, whether it's EMDR, other people do tapping, which can be helpful, or havening. I wanna speculate about why that's working. 
So when I meditate, what's useful about meditation, the only times that it works for me are when I can really lock into the pleasure cycle of the breath. So I have to be thinking about optimizing the pleasure of each part of the breath. By doing that, I really pull my brain to like what is happening right here, right now. One, it helps because it's truly when you're breathing in a meditative way, it it just feels good. Like purely hedonistically, it just feels good. And then my mind can't wander to whatever is freaking it out because I'm there in my breath. And I'm wondering if this is a, there's something about stimulating both sides of the brain that's the important part, or if this is just your focus is now locking in on the sensation of being touched or touching yourself, and that disrupts, because I I think a lot about pattern interrupting, that you're just hitting the brakes on this runaway thought, and by touching yourself, by tapping, by whatever, that you're grounding in a physical sensation which stops your brain from thinking about the traumatic thing. That's sort of bullet point one. But bullet point two is that you fell in love with the photo. But let's take these one at a time. Do you think, is it the bilateral activation of the brain that's critical or is it just the focus? I think it's the bilateral hemisphere stimulation. Because a lot of times people will bring up trauma and focus on it and it doesn't make them feel any better. It makes them feel worse. But I did a study on EMDR. We took police officers who were involved in shootings and they developed PTSD and couldn't go back to work. Mm. And I scanned them. And then I scanned them during their first EMDR session. So while the therapist was bringing up the trauma and the person- You're scanning them in that moment in or you scan them after it? In that moment. Interesting. And so, okay, before you go on- It lights up their emotional- what, what does it look like when they're PTSD'd out? So when they have PTSD, if you look at the scans I do, it looks like a diamond pattern where their limbic or emotional brain is more active compared to a healthy brain. Mm. And then in that trauma activation, it gets bigger, gets more intense. But after they did an average of eight sessions, calmed it down. And that psychological intervention had biological effects. Okay, so that all makes sense. Now, when I'm stroking myself, I am recalling the memory. I'm activating bilaterally my brain. I don't understand why that breaks the elevation of the emotion. Why? Yeah, and I'm not sure we know why. We just know it does. It was actually discovered by Francine Shapiro when she was in Menlo Park that when she looked left and then right and did it over and over again, what she was upset about didn't upset her as much. And it was really from that moment she then started working with soldiers from the VA. And did she comment on why she did it the first time? Was it accidental? It was accidental. So intriguing, okay. Yeah, and now we have other groups like the Havening Group. There's another group called Brain Spotting, but they all, seem to be bilateral hemisphere stimulation tools to bring up the trauma and sort of suck the emotion out of it. So you still remember 
it, you know, I still remember being investigated by the medical board. Mm. But I don't get... Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Freaked out. Do you tell yourself a new story? So you pull, so one of the things I find most fascinating about memory is that every time you pull it into your working memory, you're affecting it. And so you can change the tenor of that memory, the emotional resonance of that memory as you hold in a working memory and then store it back. So as you're doing this, you're doing the havening, you're, or the bilateral eye movement or both, you're pulling the memory forward. Are you, to optimize the process, do you need to tell yourself a different story about it? Do you need to focus on the positive things that came out of it? I mean, you talk about being able to find positives in death. Is that what we're doing? Or you literally just need to think about it in the normal way that you always think about it in your, I'm sure, obsessive way, but as long as you're doing that bilateral contact, it's gonna lower the emotion. For many people, that's exactly what happens. Um, other people, not so much, and so then you have to go, what else is going on? Mm. And do they have a hurt prefrontal cortex? So a lot of the soldiers that we work with, they have PTSD and traumatic brain injury, people just didn't focus on the right. fact that they were around three IED blasts. And so when things don't work like you hope they would, that's where the imaging work I do becomes so helpful. Okay, so now let's talk about the second fascinating element here. So we understand now how to lower the emotional resonance, but how did you fall in love with that photo? It, so even when you retold it to me, it sounded like a change in story, that you went from that's a photo of my father's death to that's the last photo of somebody that I loved and cared about. Is that a narrative shift that's required to get that new emotional anchor or, or the, the association with that physical sensation is pleasant and therefore it paints that new emotion on an old memory? So part of it is skill. Um, my children get horrified if I want to watch Pollyanna, one of my favorite movies ever, Pollyanna 
teaches people to play the glad game, whatever situation you're in, what is there to be glad about in this mm -hmm. situation? So I've trained my brain to do that over time. And when you take the emotion out, something's going to replace it. And if you have skill in managing your mind, you'll often look for what's right rather than what's wrong. And, and I've worked really hard on that because it wasn't my nature. Growing up, I was pretty anxious and I was masterful at predicting what's the worst thing that could happen and then I'd make it worse. So it's the know it. hallmark of people that have panic attacks. Mm. Um, but I've worked really hard and it's the blessing of my job. I get to help people and in that I always help myself. Okay, so we need to identify what our dragons are. We need to engage our prefrontal cortex to make sure that we pump the brakes on that stuff. We need to reframe things, get good at the glad game, the Pollyanna game, whatever we're gonna call that. Right. Um, we need to engage with reality. So how are things really, instead of trying to run or hide from it, both the good and the bad. So don't over um, think you're a loser, failure, whatever. Um, yeah, it's completely not helpful because negative thinking disrupts brain function. Um, but at the same time, too positive of thinking you could be driving down the freeway at 125 miles an hour in the rain. I mean, positive thinking by itself is harmful. Mm -hmm. That we have to be thoughtful and careful. No doubt. Um, right? And that's the prefrontal cortex. There's a whole chapter in the book on the dragon tamer. Mm. And it's like, how do you tame this dragon thunder? Um, and, and you do it with having forethought and judgment and impulse control, which means, oh, by the way, you have to feed it right. There's a whole section in the book on the scheming dragons, which is really how society is stealing your mind if you're scheming to make you worse basically yeah like there's the holiday dragon right oh it's thanksgiving let's eat terribly right uh or it's halloween or christmas you know we're going to celebrate the birth of the baby jesus by eating terribly and hurting people it's like how does that make sense and there's a brand new 12-step program in this book uh, because there's the addicted dragons. I talk mm. about the bad habit dragons. And as I was writing that, I'm like, you know, the 12-step program for addiction was written basically in the 1930s. And there's not one neuroscience step in the 12 steps. Mm. It's mostly psychological, social, and spiritual. And I'm like, well, if a neuroscientist rewrote the 12 steps, what would he add? that step one in the traditional 12 steps is admit your life is out of control. And I'm like, no, that's step two. Step one is what do you want? Relationships, work, money, physical, emotional, what do you want? Step two is your behavior getting you what you want. Mm. If it's not, then you need step three, which is get your brain right. Because I really think better brain, better decisions. Better brain, better relationships. Better brain, more money. Better brain, better life. No doubt. I've never heard anybody talk about goals before. Like I'm obsessed with that. And it just seems like people don't bring it up. Uh, but here we go, this is from the book. You're more likely to be able to protect yourself from dragons and ants, we've talked about those, when you have clear goals, a healthy blood sugar level, 
plenty of sleep, no alcohol in your system, and you talk about marijuana as well, which would be nice and controversial. You don't mention it in this quote, but um, you have in the book. And you are not hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And I thought that really sums up the protective mechanisms, the things you have to look out for and what you have to do. Um, Walk people through why are goals so important? Why is a guy that spent 40 years focused on brain health talking about that? And how did you come to realize just how useful that is? You have to tell your brain what you want because it's always listening. And if you don't know what you want, and I ask all of my patients, what do you want? They'll talk about money or they'll, like I have a 17, almost 18 year old daughter and she's had two boyfriends and I've dismissed them both. But it's like, what do you want? And they talk about money. Mm. And I'm like, no, that's a side effect of a meaningful, purposeful life. Having that as the goal is a terrible goal. And I I like money. I always say to my team, no margin, no mission, right? right? You have to make money. But if that's the point, that's the prescription for unhappiness. And I've always, and I got this when I was a medical student, it's people get burned out when they become unbalanced. And so when I ask my patients what they want, relationships, work, money, it's important, but it can't be the thing. Right. Physical, emotional, spiritual health. What do you want in a balanced way? Because if you know, then you're more likely to get it. So for example, you've met Tana. I want a kind, caring, loving, supportive, passionate relationship with my wife. I always want that, but I don't always feel like that. But when I'm thoughtful, when I know my goals, because they're posted, Mm. I'm so much more likely to act like that, which means I'm gonna have a great marriage, especially if she has clear goals too, and we have similar goals for our relationship. Do you guys talk about your goals? All the time. And when you say they're posted, where are they posted? So I have them posted in my bathroom and I have them on my phone. Very smart. And so, and, and so everything, it comes out. I love like three letter, three word sentences or three word questions. And like for the ands, is it true? Mm. And for goals, is does it fit? Does my behavior today fit the goals I have for my life. So last night I was at the Orange County Fair. They had fried butter puffs. Doesn't fit the goals I have, right? Because one of my goals is to be physically healthy. If you're trying to change a medical specialty, you want to live a long time because it's going to take a long time. And so I want to be healthy because that gives me energy Mm. and happiness. And so the butter fried butter puffs didn't fit yeah i think this is a a super underserved um thing it it there's a great tony robbins quote if you don't know where you want to be in five years you're already there 
And I remember when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, like so many people have dreams about where they want to go and what they want to do, but they stay these sort of vague amorphous blobs and they never get defined and therefore you never achieve them. And your future is always five years away and you're just, you're stuck in this perpetual sameness. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about that. So now let's say that they have their goal. They've written it down. They posted it. They see it multiple places in their house. How do they go about getting the brain that they're going to need to actually get there? So we know that we don't eat our butter puffs. In fact, what I'll ask is, why don't we eat our butter puffs? We want to live a long time. I get that. But specifically, what what is the problem with fried butter? Yeah, like what makes something (laughs) bad food? I think that's the right way to ask it. Um, I come up with this new phrase I just love so much uh, that you only want to love food that loves you back, Mm. that you're in a relationship with food. I think 30% of the mental health problems in America are related to our terrible diet, Uh, that you are what you eat in large part. And if you're eating, I call them the weapons of mass destruction, highly processed, pesticide sprayed, high glycemic, low fiber food-like substances stored in plastic containers, you're not going to be healthy. Mm. You poison your gut. You're poisoning your brain. And I published three studies now. The last one on 35,000 scans, one of the world's largest imaging studies. Tom, you will not believe this. There was a linear correlation on virtually every area of the brain as people's weight went up, the activity and blood flow in their brain went down. I believe it, unfortunately. Healthy weight, overweight, obese, morbidly obese, in a linear Mm. fashion. When I saw those graphs, when I was doing the research, I was just like horrified. And I come from a family of fat people. Uh, My dad used to hate when I'd say that. But I have a brother that's 150 pounds overweight. And a sister, the same thing. And I know if I just ate everything that looked good to me, I would be too. And no, I'm not having that, especially because I don't want a small brain. Right. Right? And and people go, oh, that's fat shaming. And I feel terrible about it because 72% of the country is overweight. Think about that. I mean, how insane is that? 42% of people are obese. The pandemic made it worse. We should be worried about that because the extra fat on your body produces inflammatory cytokines. And we know inflammation is a major cause of depression and dementia. The fat on your body takes healthy testosterone, which we need, which men and women need, and it turns it into unhealthy cancer-promoting forms of estrogen. That's a bad thing. Fat stores toxins. We need to get serious about being at a healthy weight with healthy food. Mm. Um, and so diet is critical. Exercise, supplementation, I think, is really important. I did a study, 97% of the population um, low in omega-3 fatty acids. And so finding ways to supplement. About 80% of us are deficient in vitamin D. In a pandemic, that's not okay. Nope. Right? Because people with low vitamin D actually die more Mm. if they get COVID-19. So Yeah, going back to what you're saying about fat shaming. So first of all, I come from a morbidly obese family as well. And I've often said that you 
when you love something, you don't hate on it, look down on it. Like I don't think less of people because they're obese. Uh, but going back to the idea of facing reality, at the same time, I know that I will lose them earlier than I absolutely have to if they continue to live that lifestyle. And so getting people, especially now in a pandemic, to just face that it isn't fat shaming to say you're more likely to survive this disease that's ravaging you know, the entire human population if you are living a healthy lifestyle, get your weight under control, exercise, eat right, work out, all of that stuff. Um, because there's nothing worse than trying to solve a problem when you ignore the thing that's actually causing it. Like you're just at that point, it's really about symptom mitigation versus figuring out what's really going on. Um, do you think that this, so going back to weight specifically. I want to pick up on that for a second because I learned a long time ago as a psychiatrist, if you don't admit you have a problem, Mm. you can't solve it. Dude, that is so true. Until I finally admitted to my wife that I was anxious, I, I couldn't make progress. And finally, I just was like, fuck, I have to tell her. And it really did not make me feel good about myself because, you know, there is something about the way that she would look at me like I could do anything. And that felt so good. And to finally be like, yo, I'm over here. I am struggling, homie. Like, this is really gnarly. And of course, it wasn't the turnoff that I feared it was going to be, and it only brought us closer together. But that was really hard to admit. But then once I could say it out loud to the person that was the only person I really cared about impressing, then it was like, okay, now I can actually deal with this. Because when you become more real, you become more relatable. And this, so many guys don't understand this, that they deny that they have a problem because they want to be perceived as the person who has it all together, but then nobody can relate to you. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons I became really vulnerable in the book. And I haven't gotten any haters. <laughs> I mean, I have plenty of haters, don't get me wrong, but from writing For that. A, from on that stand, um, but I remember when I did the big NFL study, mm-hmm. at a time when I'm the NFL trauma. was sort of lying, they had a problem. And my letter to the commissioner, so you don't admit you have a problem, you can't solve it, and it's going to get worse. Yeah. And, and that came from marriages where especially the guy wouldn't admit that they were struggling. Mm-hmm. And it ended up falling apart. Yeah, I can certainly understand that. So, okay, we admit that we have a problem, whether it's about weight or whatever. Um, how do we begin to unwind this stuff? That's really, I think, the, the important thing. Is it, does it just come down to, look, there are, because you, you write in the book and I wrote them down so I can read them out if we need to, but um, they're just, are there just certain things you just have to do and you just, you have to do them. And until you do them, like this is never going to change. Well, and that's the bad habit chapter. You know, I have the bad habit dragons. There's Mm. the overeater bad habit dragon. The worst of all the dragons is the oblivious dragon. The dragon. Is that an intentional, like you're intentionally being oblivious or people that really just don't know? You just don't know. And you haven't taken the time. You go, I'm fat because everybody in my family's fat. It's like, no, I have a lot of fat people in my family and I'm not because I don't give in to the behaviors making it likely to be so. And so it's about being intentional, reading the labels of the food you eat, of the products you put 
on your body. It's asking yourself this one question. Is this good for my brain or bad for it? Mm. Right? I mean, ultimately, in all of my books, I try to create brain envy. I want people to love their brains. Um, and is this good for my brain or bad for it? And the reason that brain envy works, just to be clear, is because you can improve your brain. How exciting is that? And I've proven that over and mm. over in NFL players and soldiers and police officers that you're not stuck. And intuitively, people should know that, right? If I don't sleep tonight, and I'm not going to think well tomorrow. But no one's thinking about the physical functioning of their brain. So I'm in Justin Bieber's um, new docu-series, Seasons. And he came out. I've been his doctor for a long time. And like many celebrities, he'd do it, I'd say, sometimes. <laughs> Show up sometimes. But then, because he went through a really hard time, he came into my office and he said, I get it. My brain is an organ like my heart is an organ. If you told me I had heart problems, I'd do everything you say. I'm going to do everything you say. And he got radically better. Mm. And you got to love it. And, and we have to stop this whole mental illness thing. I hate it. Because it's not mental illness. It's brain health. Right. Get your brain right. And your mood is better. You're mm. happier. You're more focused. You make less bad decisions. Which will decrease your anxiety. Speaking of anxiety. So you said earlier that you think 30% of mental health brain health problems are tied to um, diet. In my end of one experience, I think it's even higher than that. So when I think about, okay, suffering from profound anxiety, I'm trying all the mental tricks and there's no doubt they helped. I mean, very, very beneficial. But I just couldn't, I felt like I was learning to better cope with the symptoms, but I wasn't eliminating the symptoms. And so I was like, what is going on? And then of course, because of what my wife went through from a health perspective, become aware of the gut, start really thinking about what I'm eating and that there are gonna be things that might be messing me up that I just would never have guessed. Um, Longtime listeners of my show will grow tired of hearing the following statement, but at the beginning of COVID, I went through something really weird that I'd never experienced before. I was getting super tired all the time, brain fog, just like, almost losing my zest for life. And I was like, this is really bizarre. And I thought, okay, well, what would you tell somebody if they came and described those symptoms? And I was like, no matter what I would tell them, it's something that you're eating because that's just so true in terms of the way if your body's being affected, your brain's being affected, it's almost certainly something you're eating. And I'm like, but my diet's so healthy. Like, how could this possibly be? And I was like, just eliminate whatever you're eating a lot of and see what happens. And I'm like, what am I eating a lot of? And I was like, pecans? And so I cut out pecans, 48 hours later, I was back in business. I was like, how the hell is it possible that pecans evolved? And they were like raw, they weren't even like roasted. I mean, these were like the fucking, all but just plucked off a tree. So I was, I, anyway, I couldn't fathom that that was it, but it was it. And then that got me thinking, wait a second, could my anxiety be tied to something I'm eating? And so then I started cutting out anything processed because dude i love my zero calorie drinks love them in a way i can't even begin to tell you but of course that comes with a lot of chemicals that i've never even heard of and i've heard of a lot of chemicals and in cutting all of that out 
the what my anxiety feels like to me now, I might still have a thought about something's going to go wrong in the future. And that will trigger that, that feeling of like, ooh, something bad is coming. But it never escalates. Food is so important. And um, when I put my patients on an elimination diet, so we basically eliminate the bad things, mm. um, they get so much better. And the nutritionists that work with us have more success stories than the psychiatrists. And it used to irritate me. Food matters. What you put in your mouth, your microbiome Mm. matters. We have these hundred trillion bugs in our gut. And what we feed them, you know, helps to grow the ones that make you happy or they help to grow the ones that make you angry and sad. Um, It's just so important. And our biggest blog last year, uh, I wrote one called I Told You So. And when I, and I started with when I dated Tana, she told me I will never tell you I told you so. <laughs> she lied. It's like her favorite thing to say. And then I said, but the American Cancer Society just came out and said you shouldn't drink. Why? It increases your risk of seven different mm-hmm. kinds of cancer. Not to mention it prematurely when, ages. When people your were brain. giving that advice, I was like, uh, like this one just doesn't land for me. It just doesn't seem possible that it would be essentially a health food. What about weed? Marijuana is uh, in. That it's very in. My it's friend. in. I published a study on a thousand marijuana users. Mm. Every area of their brain is lower in activity. Oof. Now, does help some people? Like when my father and what? What does it actually help with? It helps increase appetite. For some people, it can actually decrease seizure frequency. Mm. It, it suppresses activity in the brain. I'm very worried because as the perception of dangerousness of a drug goes down, yeah. its use goes up especially in teenagers and if you're smoking or eating edibles as a teenager you've just increased your risk of anxiety depression and suicide in your 20s oof so that's it's not good and i you know all child psychiatrists i'm also a child psychiatrist have the experience of all of a sudden the 16 year old is not acting right and we test them and they end up positive for marijuana, mm-hmm. that it's not innocuous. Right. And, and I think that's the important thing. Now, is it worse than alcohol? Well, actually, I published a study on 62,000. This is the world's largest imaging study, 62,000 scans on how the brain ages. And then we looked at what accelerated aging. Mm. Schizophrenia was the worst. Your brain looked 10 years older than people who didn't have schizophrenia. The second worst, and it was a surprise for me, was marijuana. Your brain... Worse looked, than alcohol. Look worse than alcohol, worse than smoking. What? Yeah. I am startled by that. Yeah, I was too. And it's like, it's the data. And wow. I have no dog in the fight, right? If you smoke, if wow. you don't smoke, you're just actually more likely to see me if you do. Is it lowering blood flow? Like, it's what's lowering the mechanism? blood flow to brain. Wow. And I thought it, for sure you were going to say alcohol was the worst. Yeah, but neither of them are good. Man, that's crazy. Yeah, so... Food can make you happy. 
so can (laughs) drugs that's the that's the problem like when i think about all the the insults that people can do to their brain how important the brain is for the mind and that your mind if you don't have your mind under control your life your life will be determined by how well you control your mind like i just because ultimately all we are is a string of emotions things either make you feel good bad or indifferent and when you spend a lot of time feeling bad life sucks when you spend a lot of time feeling good life is great and it doesn't matter if you have all the money in the world if you feel bad life sucks doesn't matter if you're broke as a day is long if you feel good life is great so but the number of things that insult our brain from just concussive trauma from certain types of contact sports to um, sitting around, to uh, weed, alcohol, a lot of things that are fun, over prescription of drugs. Oh my God, gadget screen time, like, yeah, negative thoughts. Like, it is bananas. And the amount of time that people have to put into getting it right. So, we have a high school course called Brain Thrive by 25. And I I love this course. And we play a game with them Mm -hmm. called Who Has More Fun? The kid with the good brain or the kid with the bad brain who gets the girl and gets to keep her because he doesn't act like an ass. The kid with the good brain or the kid with the bad brain who gets into college, who Mm. gets the job they want, who has the most consistent positive behavior. It's the person with the good brain. This is not about not having fun. It's about having fun with all of you intact. Yeah. And over a prolonged period of time. Over a prolonged period of time. Dr. Amen, thank you so much for coming on. Dude, I always love your books and time with you. Where can people connect with you and ensure that they have the good brain over a long period of time? Well, they can find us at amenclinics.com. So amen, like the last word in a prayer, clinics.com. They can follow me on Facebook or Instagram. Instagram, it's at doc underscore amen. We're doing a whole cool series called Scan My Brain. We've done some just wonderful influencers. It's super fun. And um, we want to create a revolution in brain health. We want to end mental illness, end that whole discussion, and really start talking. With a better brain always comes a better life. I love it. I love it. And thank you for everything that you do. Guys, if you haven't already uh, followed him on every conceivable place, do read his books. They are transformative. And speaking of things that are transformative, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Thank you guys so much for watching and being a part of this community. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. You're going to get weekly videos on building a growth mindset, cultivating grit, and unlocking your full potential.